I'm your producer, Todd Bartu, and this is the Offshore Explorer. Offshore Explorer looks at the world from the sailor's point of view, port by port. Together, we share stories that detail the important intersections between sailing culture and life, past, present, and future. Let me introduce our host, a lifelong sailor who has traveled the world, from mega yachts to tugboats to iceboats, and a published author who has written for both stage and screen, Captain Scott Dodson. Hi, Todd. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So what do we have planned for today's episode? Well, today I thought I'd tell a little bit of a, a crazy story about sailing down the Baja coast for a lot of West Coast sailors, and this is good information for East Coast sailors. You know, the West Coast is a, is a pretty uh, treacherous coast. Um, there's not a lot of ports, a lot of places to put in. And so um, you got to really plan. Make sure you've got uh, plenty of fuel and water and fuel, you know, and, and food and everything like that. And um, I tell the story of uh, taking a, uh, a Hinkley uh, Southwester um, uh, 53 and taking it down to Cabo St. Lucas uh, with a very old friend that used to steal my girlfriends and... Um, two other characters and um, we really we really had sort of a Hemingway testing of one's metal it was a uh, became an, an interesting trip which generally is otherwise is actually a beautiful downwind sail okay great take it away Scott heard of uh, Baja Peninsula in Mexico. It's this long finger, actually quite big, that runs from uh, San Diego all the way down to Cabo St. Lucas. You have the Pacific on one side and the Sea of Cortez on the other side. It's uh, basically broken up into two parts. Uh, the northern part is what they call Baja, and then the southern part is called Sur Baja. And um, very different kind of climates. It's more Mediterranean in the northern part. And in the southern part, it's just desert. And it is, on the Pacific side, an unforgiving coast. Uh, it's a hard coast. It's uh, some mountains and mountain ranges, um, beautiful beaches, and... Um, but no place to put in a boat. There are some lagoons and sanctuaries. There's like f maybe four places that you could seek shelter in. Um, but for the most part, there's you're out there. You're 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 at the, you're out in the middle of the ocean, kind of thing, with a hard uh, iron coast. And it actually, quite reminds me of sailing um, Portugal. Um, the coast of Portugal, sailing the coast of Spain, um, even some of North Africa. It has that. It has that same look. In fact, most of California, um, if if you didn't know where you were, it would kind of look like a lot of the um, the Spanish, Portuguese, uh, even some of the Mediterranean coast, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference because it all has that same look and patina, the same light um, that covers the whole thing. So it's, it's an interesting thing. But my story today is about the unexpected and how Baja sort of turned four lives um, in a different direction. I had, uh, at the time, I was the captain of a Hinkley Southwester. I always say that, Southwester, you know, Southwester. I want to say the in there. Um, Southwester 53. Um, I had mentioned the owner before, Dirk. And he had gotten the wild idea, and he said, hey, let's, let's go down then to Cabo St. Lucas, and we'll go down and do some fishing, and we'll do some stuff. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do some stuff down there and chase, 
you know, little chiquitas and all there is, the cantina girls and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that's what he wanted to do. My job was, as the captain, was to deliver, deliver the boat down there in one piece. So we were in San Diego, and I had gotten, I was looking for some crew. And one of the crew, first crew members that I got was uh, a young boy named Toby. Now, Toby was like 21, 22 years old, um, probably going on like 15 um, uh, with his emotional intelligence. Um, he was a total surfer. Um, everything was, dude, um, this, this was his thing. He, he was born in Carlsbad. And if any of you know this part of the country, California, that's it's very wealthy. Um, he he grew up as in a very very wealthy family, um, very opinionated, um, but he was a surfer dude. And you know everything was gnarly, everything was surfing, everything was this. But he also loved being on the boat, and so he w turned out to be a pretty good mate. And, um, so he was, he was my first get as far as, um, crew members. I met this guy, Nikki in a bar. Uh, Nikki was from Sheep's Head Bay, Long Island. He's very New Yorker. And, and he had, uh, come down, he, he had been, he had had a kind of convoluted story. He had been in the Navy um, he got out of the Navy and really liked the weather there rather than sheep's bed. And he was trying not to go home, I suppose. Um, he was, you know, maybe he's late 20s. Um, he, he did his four years, didn't like the Navy. Um, he found a job working in the yard. Uh, somebody mentioned his name to me and, you know, he came by the boat and, you know, said, yeah, I'd be, love to be delivery crew and this, that, and other thing. He seemed like a really, you know, nice guy. Um, very heavy New York accent. And, um, you know, it's, it was like, okay, so there's crew number two. So as things go on, I actually had a phone call from a college friend who uh, was going to be in San Diego and just was, you know, we were going to hook up. And, and, you know, he had, he had mentioned a couple of things, you know, and other people. And he says to me, he said, you know, your roommate, your old roommate, Guillermo, he's living in Tijuana. And I said, no kidding. So Guillermo Viecas is a painter and he's a painter, you know, of some, of some note in Mexico. And he was a graduate student in painting and art at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Shout out to the Spartans. I was going to school there for a degree in English and writing and theater. And just basically, you know, I had done my service. I was in the war and I was just sort of recovering and I was enjoying my life. And I ran into Guillermo uh, in an art class, and he he was a graduate student. I was an undergraduate student, but I was actually older than he was. So we just started to talk. We hit it off. And though he's he was a very cool guy, and um, you know, very neat, and and this that another thing. And I was looking for a roommate because there was a house um, in Greensboro that I wanted to to rent that was real close to campus, and. He and I talked about it, and I said, yeah, sure, you know, and, and we ended up renting this this house. And and one of the reasons we liked it is because it had this, you know, big living room um, and lots of windows all around and a, a fairly um, tall ceiling. And it, it actually turned into Guillermo's studio. So he could, he, he painted these 10 foot by 12 foot, canvases bright colors and 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 he was really sublime i thought and so we had a good working you know living together relationship so i was really excited to find out that he was in tijuana it's just like right across the border from where we were 
And as I'm putting the trip together to go down to Cabo, I'm thinking to myself, why not, why not bring Guillermo along if he wants to go? Plus, he's Mexican and speaks Spanish, obviously. And, you know, it'll be fun because Guillermo's a cool dude, right? And um, it may open up some doors that we would otherwise, as gringos, not understand or be able to open. So I went down to Tijuana. Actually, both Nikki and Toby came with me down to Tijuana. Nikki obviously had been to Tijuana several times, um, mostly to the girly bars. And he, as he said, he never he never left Tijuana sober. Um, so he, you know, was drinking cheap tequila and this, that, another thing. And so he kind of went down a street whenever we saw him like the next day kind of thing and he, with a terrible hangover. But that's the way he expressed his, uh, you know, he that's the way he expressed his kind of, uh, masculinity, I suppose, was to go and, you know, be hard drinking and, and womanizing and all the rest of that. And it was very much in his character to be that way. Toby, on the other hand, was sort of like having a, a pet, like a, a pet dog, you know, he just sort of followed around and looked a little slope-eyed and 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 was very you know funny and kick up some sand and like dude what's happening you know wow look at this man sombrero and and this kind of stuff and you know it, it was funny for about five minutes and then um anyway so he came with me and i had actually found i called and i found guillermo um in tijuana he had a studio there um, he had a, a, a wife and a couple of kids. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. So I, when I heard that he had a couple of kids and a wife, I figured, okay, he's not going to want to go sailing down to Cabo with me. But anyway, it was something to go see him because we had actually gotten close. And we got close and we had arguments and then we fell out and then we got close again. And now the idea that we, you know, we were living together... Um, as roommates, um, and he was a painter. He had, he would, he would do this thing. Um, he was handsome. I would bring home a girlfriend. This is in college. I'd bring home a girlfriend, and then he would talk her up, and say, "Hey, let me paint you, okay?" Let, and then you'd see these giant canvases of, essentially, giant canvases of a year worth of my girlfriends up on the thing. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there trying to prove myself with girls. I wasn't in competition with Guillermo. I wasn't, you know, these were girl quote unquote friends. They were friends of mine, but I did have one girlfriend who was very, I was very serious about. Her name was Jan. And Jan was a gorgeous looking girl, uh, with a really kind of strange, um, in it for the minute, attitude. So I went, I had to, to leave the house. He met Jan and he said, Hey, can I paint you? And Jan kind of said like, okay, Guillermo, you're going to be the painter. You're going to get me, you want to get me naked. You're going to paint me naked. And, and then we're going to have sex. And I just don't want to do that. This is what Jan told him, told him. I mean, literally to his face. And he was very, he was, I said, yeah, see, you're getting yours, buddy. And, he, and we just, we kind of laughed about it. In any case, I, I went on a um, very long, it's another story entirely, but I went to uh, Poland to study with uh, Jerzy Krotowski and the Theater of the Poor. And this, this sort of relates to um, me meeting Andre Gregory and writing and working on another film and... It's a long, convoluted path. But in any case, I I went and I did this, and I left the house, of course, because I had to, I went to Poland. When I came back from Poland about three weeks later, I walk into the house with my bags, and I see this 10 by 12 portrait of Jan 
breasts exposed with this red drape over her and this look of I am not interested in you, but I'll do you kind of look. And this kind of backhanded way of looking at at the world. And what you have to know is, is Jan was somewhat of a, she was really a gold digger, to, to be honest. Um, not that I had the gold, but she had already kind of was engaged. She was my girlfriend for a while, but she had agreed to be engaged by another guy from her hometown who was extremely rich, extremely rich, who she could live with, um, but she was going to marry him because he had a lot of money. I mean, this is what she told me. So she had that kind of like, I'm doing what's right financially for me, but I'm not happy because I love this life of being an artist model, of you know being around these sort of dynamic people. Because I, I met her future husband. He, watching paint would be less boring. But he was very rich. So I came back and I saw this and I really got pissed off. I got pissed off Guillermo about it. And I said, you're like, you're like stealing girlfriends here, dude. This is just, no. He's, and he's laughing and, you know, like, no, man, it's okay. She did it. She came and he was provoking me. You know, like he never said, oh, yeah, we had sex. He never, you know, and I, I wanted to confront her about it. And she, she just blew me off and just said, oh, no, it was nothing. It was nothing. But in my mind, I was fixated on the fact that they had just, she had cheated on me and that, that Guillermo, my, my best friend at the time, he, he had just, you know, used me and used, you know, my contacts with people and, you know, pretty girls to paint them and blah, 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 blah. And I was really pissed off and we kind of fell out. I actually eventually moved out and he, several months later, he, he, um, left and, and, and went to New York to, uh, to paint. And that was kind of how we left our relationship. So when I knocked on the door in Tijuana on a little side street, knocked on the door, and if you know anything, you know, uh, Mexican houses Spanish, are like Spanish houses where they have like all this, these walls and this courtyard in the center and, and stuff. So there's like the outer door. So you ring this bell and, and um, Guillermo opens the door and it's like old home week and we we're laughing and you know, Toby comes walking in and we sit down. I meet the kids. I meet the wife. His wife is gorgeous. And she's also an artist. And we start talking. We have some tequila. We have some food. And then I, I broached the subject. I said, look, I thought maybe you'd like to sail with me down to, uh, down to uh, Cabo San Lucas. And he jumped at the thing. He said, yes, definitely. Let's go. Let's go. Now he's, he, you know, he's 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 an, an adventurer to a certain degree, but he's also he's also a painter, and he sees the world in a different in a different kind of way. He had no sailing experience whatsoever, but he was willing to go. Toby actually had some sailing experience, and Nikki had what I call navy experience. In other words, he was on a big ship and was just sailing around on a big ship. And he'd been on a sailboat a couple of times. And I kind of knew that these guys were inexperienced. It was okay because I could sail the boat by myself and I knew how to sail. And it's a downwind sail and not much is going to happen for the whole time. It's just a question of, of being around some people that you like, that can be funny, that you can listen to, that can tell stories, that pass the time really well, and all the rest of this stuff. And I thought... It would be nice that Guillermo and I could heal that old wound because I felt like, you know, in college that we had a serious kind of connection um, as friends, as male friends. And it was it was sort of fun. You know, I just thought it would be a good idea. So we all clambered onto the boat and um, we left uh, like two weeks later. And normally, uh, many people will hear the idea, the, the, the phrase, the uh, ha ha ha. 
which is, you know, the, the, there's a group of boats that stage in San Diego and sail down to Cabo St. Lucas in sort of a big festival. Like, I, I think they get three, four, five hundred boats, cruisers. It's like the California, it's the California cruising uh, deal. So people go down and then they go either up the Sea of Cortez or to Puerto Vallarta or whatever the case may be. So this is sort of the big cruise. And then they come back eventually, maybe the next year, which they call the Baja Bash because you're going into the current, into the wind, and you're just pounding away to get back to, literally get back to San Diego or or Los Angeles or San Francisco or even even people come down as as far as Vancouver um, sail all the way down to do the Baja and it's a lot of fun it's a great great sailing great net lots of interesting people from different backgrounds it's just a it's a it's a great party and we were not going to be a part of that. We were actually a little early for that. So we were, we were leaving in late August. They usually leave in October. So we were leaving in late August. And, you know, my owner wanted me to get the boat down there as soon as possible. So I kind of go over all the systems with everybody. I tell everybody what it is that they have to do and how to do this and, you know, how to trim a sail. And we kind of go through a whole educational process. Guillermo is extremely happy. His first words out of his mouth were that it's good to get away. You know, he had two kids that were like four and five or four and six. They were driving him mad. Um, his, his wife was an artist. Uh, she was driving him mad. Um, it was just typical family stuff. Um, and as far as I know, they're still actually, they're still married and their kids, they're, together forever um and uh, conchita is her name and just really lovely she's lovely and and very very talented she does these these interesting kind of miniatures um as an artist and but you know when one artist lives with another artist there's always fireworks it's always um, rubbing up against the other's um creativity and it's just there's there's a great connection and then there's not. There's a great connection and then there's conflict. And I mean I know this for sure because I happen to live with one. Any case, so we we get out of uh, we get out of the harbor, out of San Diego Harbor, and we head for the Baja, seven hundred and fifty miles. It's kind of a wonderful thing once you get out of the harbor with your new crew and you start establishing the process that you're going to run you know who's going to be on deck what the watches are going to be and and how everything's going to work and of course the guys just love the boat i mean you can't go wrong with a hankley it's just gorgeous so we just you know, set a couple of sails, actually, we put up an asymmetrical, and um, it just stayed full. I didn't need a whisker pole, I didn't need anything, it just went out there, it popped, the wind was steady, and we just blew down, just just cruised down past uh, Encinitas, and Rosetto, or no, uh, what is it, uh, Rosarito, and and everybody sort of settled into their little nooks and little crannies, enjoyed the sun. And there's one thing when you are cruising down there, it's hotter than hell. When the sun when the wind's not blowing, the sun will definitely beat you up. But in any case, the conversations were pretty stupid for the most part, as they can be between guys guffawing and laughing. I had talked about, you know, how to reef the mainsail. I had talked about, you know, I'd showed the guys, I mean, literally showed the guys how, how one does it. Um, Toby was very helpful. Um, Toby kind of knew what he was doing. But Toby's point of view of life came from his father, who was like this hardcore 
semi-retired uh, businessman who made a fortune in jacuzzis. Yes, jacuzzis. And he... He, he he made a fortune in this. And Toby just grew up in a rich household where he got anything that he wanted. And his point of view in general was from a jacuzzi salesman, which is pretty funny when you think about it. But he was just a surfer dude. And so he had this sort of point of view where he would look at Guillermo like the help. He didn't mean to be... Um, he didn't mean to be prejudiced or bigoted. It was this sort of, this is just the way the world is, dude. You know? Like, you know, I'm really rich, and I've got a surfboard, and i got my own thing, and, uh, you know, Mexicans are the ones that clean our houses and do our lawns. And he, this is what he thought. This is how he acted. And Guillermo kind of just sloughed it off. He wasn't really, you know, he didn't buy the whole Toby Surfer, gnarly dude kind of portrayal that uh, Toby was putting out there. But I relied on Toby because Toby knew what he was doing. He could sail a boat by himself. And he just lacked a little bit of confidence. And he made a really good first mate. In fact, uh, I took Toby on a number of passages into the Pacific with me, and he was a great first mate. But Guillermo began to have this real problem with Nikki. And Nikki had this whole, like, Italian, although he wasn't Italian, I don't even know what he was, but he acted like a tough guy, like he was a mobster, and he, he you know, he was angry all the time, and he... He was just like, you know, he, he put Guillermo down, you know, he, he called him names, he, you know, he did it in a joking way, but it's just, it was, it was just like, I had to actually say to Nikki, I said, Nikki, this chill, man, this is a really dear friend of mine who is an incredible artist. You can't just be, you know, you know, calling him names, you know, you can't call, you can't call him Taco. You know what? Oh yeah, man, that's just I'm just being fun. So no, you can't do that. So we had this this sort of little conflict going, and Guillermo was very much doing this, but Guillermo really wanted to be on the boat because I felt that there was something that Guillermo wanted to tell me. He admitted basically to me that that he had been angry. Um, a long time ago with the, with the girls that I would bring home. I'm, I mean, I would just, they were just my friends. You have to understand, I was in the theater program, lots of pretty girls in the theater program, very dynamic and fun. And we used to come to the house in Greensboro and practice and rehearse and do lines and stuff like this. And, and that blew Guillermo's mind. Girls, just blew his mind. So in a way, he was very jealous and his way of dealing with his jealousy was trying to take those girls away from me. He wanted to conquer them. He had that masculine, conquering kind of brute idea that he wanted to take women away because he wasn't going to let anybody be more superior than he was. And you have to understand this. this uh, cultures breed this sort of masculinity, breed this sort of dominance you know, and, and misogyny. And Guillermo was a misogynist, there was no doubt. But I think his wife dealt with it in sort of an offhanded way that she paid no attention to it, and whenever it got in the way, she put him in his place. Because she was more matriarchal than he was patriarchal. And it was good for him. And that's how their relationship worked. So we're sailing down. We got the asymmetrical out. The boat is just, I mean, the auto helm on the boat was hardly moving. We were hardly using any electricity on the auto helm. It was just, it was just brilliant sailing. And the coast is just sort of going past. 
And I finally got into a thing where I said, oh, you know, I found what I was looking for was the peace, peace at the sea, peace with, with the people that were on the boat, you know, the crew on the boat. I, I was in charge. I never doubted myself. I, I pr- tried to pro- project a calm confidence. I didn't, I don't yell at people on a boat. I instruct, um, I can yell, um, and I did at one point, because in our second, you know, maybe our third day down, I think we were, I think we were out Tortuga, by Tortuga Bay, somewhere. We're just going, you know, we didn't need to stop. I had plenty of fuel. We didn't use the engine that much, and the sailing was just brilliant. But the wind started to change a little bit, and the asymmetrical came down. Uh, we had more of us. Uh, we had a stronger offshore breeze. Uh, we started to get gusts from twenty to thirty, thirty to forty, and and then at night, um, on our I guess our fourth day, third fourth day, uh, the wind really got crazy. And we started to get these contrary seas. The ocean just really, really kicked up. Now, I was standing at the helm, and I started to, you know, we had to secure. Everything was secure, obviously. But I I went, I put up a, um, um, a storm hanky, and I reefed the main all the way down. And we were just skating. And we had contrary waves. So we had the current waves pushing us south. So we would rise up on these big swells and then we shoot down the swells. But then we had these um, waves that come from the side. And we kept working and working and working um, these just not to be hit by one of these breaking waves because when they they all seemed when they got close to the boat that this that the wave would break just like just before it hit the hull and in some cases it would slap up against the side of the hull and we would be like oh boy that hurt and down below it sounded like somebody was taking a telephone pole and driving it into the hull of the boat so as we're doing it i i barked at uh nikki i i wanted to make sure that he was you know had his shit together and 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 he didn't want to put on a safety line and he was just being a jerk and you know he just was just for some reason this fear that he had of what was going on just overtook him and his way of dealing with that fear was lashing out at people and he lashed out at Guillermo and I thought Guillermo was going to fight them fight him in the cockpit and Guillermo was not really happy. I mean, it was a tough thing. So I sent Nikki downstairs. I said, good, good aunt, get some sleep, whatever. I'll take the, the helm. And Guillermo went downstairs as well. He went to his, his bunk, stayed in his bunk while all of this was going on. He, he was one of the few people I know that felt more comfortable being down below during a storm than being on deck. I don't know why, but most people get sick when they go down below. But Nikki wanted to go down below. He's going to stay down there and blah, blah, blah. And he was going to sulk and be angry and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And it was just, we just didn't need it. And Toby, who was going to sleep, who was sleeping on the settee, just came up and said, yeah, dude, what's happening? You know, okay. So we were going along. We weren't, you know, there wasn't anything like critical it was critical that the waves were big. They were slapping us around a little bit, but we were good. Um, we were skating along and handling the helm at the time uh, took a lot of concentration because I don't want the boat to broach going down some of these waves. And I, I want to be able at the last second, if I can see a wave coming towards me, I don't want to hit it, have it hit on the side. Uh, maybe I could, you know, adjust and, you know, take the bow and move it into the wind or into the wave, and that way I could, you know, sort of mitigate the the violence of the wave, the power of the wave. So the only thing I can see through the glow of the binnacle uh, is this white water bubbling around. 
And if I turn around and I look, I can see, and, and I should note, there's not a cloud in the sky. It's just stars. And I look behind me and I see these big following waves coming up and down like a snake. I can see their back and we're just, we're just humping along. I can hear the propeller, uh, you know, um, spinning, you know, as we get about, we would go over like seven, eight knots and you could hear the propeller go. I later put a lock in there so I could lock the propeller and uh, that helped a lot. Um, creates a little bit of drag. We eventually, on the boat, um, um, put in you know a different kind of propeller, so it would you know turn a little bit more easy, and and it wouldn't bother the stuff. The whole thing about the transmission thing with the propeller, which I'll just note as a side thing, is that um, you know if you start your if you've been running your engine every twenty four hours or whatever the case may be. You know, having the prop turned is not going to bother the transmission. The transmission is just a piece of metal that's got oil in it, and oil goes around all the time, and it doesn't need a pump. It just turns around, and it doesn't get hot as it turns. It takes it takes a lot to get it hot, like, you know, 1,500 RPM kind of hot. And even then, it probably wouldn't do it, and you're not going to, you're not going to make that heat with a prop sitting in the water turning by itself in neutral. So we're going down, and all I can see is this white water stuff. I got my safety harness on. I'm standing at the helm. I've got the wheel in my hand. I got the compass. I can see where I'm going. We're moving along. And I look up to the right, and the only thing I can see is water. This freaking wave was like as high as my first set of spreaders. All right. And I look up and it was like, oh shit. And it broke right on top of us. And it knocked the boat down, just planted us in the side. And what I. I was literally underwater for a moment and I was literally, I lost the grip to the helm and I was looking, I was looking for the boat. I was literally kind of floating free and looking for the boat and my fingertips just happened to catch something on the boat, just the edges of something, the edge right on the edge and boom, I pulled on that and I leaped into the and the boat just rose up full of water just pouring off the boat and I look up and there's another big ass wave but this one broke just before it hit us and we rose up and it just like slushed all the water off of the boat and into the sea and 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 it was just it, everything was gushing right and then like two seconds later the hatch which had been closed for safety reasons not getting water down there flies open and toby sticks his head up and goes dude that was gnarly i said is everybody is everybody okay down there and he goes nikki threw up on the ceiling and I think he broke his arm. And I said, how's Guillermo? He's asleep. I said, shut the hatch. Put, turn on the bilge pumps. Just let's have them on manual right now. Let's get, if there's any water in the boat, let's make sure we get it out. Boom, 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 boom. I started the engine. I started to move the boat faster. Then I, I, I wanted to go, but I wanted to see if we could get out of this zone of the sideways waves that were crushing us and get, get things going and get us to some sort of safety. This was like crazy. The next morning, the sea had literally flattened we weren't far from magdalena bay so 
that's where we were going to go. And I was going to go there to put in fuel anyway. From Magdalena Bay to Cabo was about 400 miles, which we could easily make. The sky was totally clear. I mean, it was so clear, it was almost squeaky clean. The water, the ocean was just flat, smooth. There wasn't even a ripple. You could see where a seagull would come by, and you could see its, you know, its little footprints on the sea. Now, our storm hanky, because of the way we kind of ditched into the sea, the hanks on it had broken off, which was needed repairing if I was going to use it again. And the seam that the hank-ons were going into broke off. The seam ripped. But I had the normal... I had the... I had the... Genoa up. A car on the mainsail had bent and um, broken. There was a D-ring in the deck that had separated, broken the top, just peeled it off. Let's give you an indication of how strong that wave was. The boat was essentially dry. Kudos to Hinkley for making a really solid, solid boat. We were very happy, I think, for the most part. Nicky, in fact, did break his arm. He, in fact, did throw up in the cabin on the ceiling. And the humility that this event caused in Nicky suddenly made him reevaluate his life. I put a splint on his his uh, forearm. He we had to wait to get into Magdalena Bay and you know see a doctor or get an x-ray. I don't know. We all sort of realize he realized it's just broken. There's not much I can do about it. His elbow was very uh, you know blue for the most part. He was a baby anyway. So we put all this stuff together. The boat was okay. The boat was running. We're not far from Magdalena Bay. And one of the things that happened at that particular point was I had a fishing pole, and I'd been dragging a line the entire time. Through all of this nonsense of being knocked down and crushed, And suddenly the reel goes, and I mean, it's a smoking. This is a big old ocean uh, pen reel. My, actually, my grandfather gave me this pen reel. Um, it's a good solid. It's not as, as big as um, you would want if you're going marlin fishing or sailfish or something of that nature or it's, uh, but it's, it's like the next size down. I don't know what size that is, but it's like the next size down. And it, it was an old one, but it was very reliable and it worked great. I mean, we would catch, I would catch Mahi Mahi all the time on it and work just fine. I, it's been, it was around the world with me and I've, I've caught tons of fish with it. I, I can't even begin to tell you how much fish I've caught on that reel. And a stubby little ocean you know, ocean pole, to say the least. And so the reel was just singing. And, you know, I, I jumped on it and I clicked it. It started to put the, I put the drag on it just to get it to slow down, but it wasn't going to slow down even with the drag. And I just kept adjusting the drag and adjusting the drag. And the, as I adjusted the drag, there was more stuff on There was more power into the uh, pole. I knew I had something big. This wasn't, this wasn't a 25, 35, 40, 40 pound mahi-mahi. This was a freaking marlin. And in fact, 
it was a marlin of about 600 pounds. So I'm standing on the back of the sailboat with this marlin hooked. He came up, and of course the guys are all into it. Guillermo's all into it. Everybody's into it. We're laughing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nikki is like watching this whole thing go on in disbelief. He's in tremendous pain with his broken arm. And I had actually given him some good pain pills that we had on board. Always have a good medical kit, folks. Really good. Spend the money. Don't think you could put it together yourself. It's always something you'll need that you can't think about. Advice for the future. So we spent the next five hours working that fish. I was exhausted. I mean, I had been up all night. I had gone through this crazy storm. I had been, you know, I was on deck when we were knocked down. I really thought we were going to sink. Um, Toby was up on the deck. He was fighting the fish. Uh, Guillermo was fighting the fish, but Guillermo wasn't very strong. Um, he wasn't a strong human being. It was kind of like a normal... I mean, you have a 600-pound marlin, and you don't have a chair, and you don't have some place to, to put the end of that pole, and it's between your legs, and it's hours of fighting this thing. It's exhausting, especially in the sun. And in fact, this thing, this, this marlin pulled so hard that even though we were moving along at an idle speed, I think he actually stopped the boat. He was pulling the boat backwards. At least that's what it seemed. So we're having our Hemingway moment. And as I say, as you know, we're talking about the, the, the different stages of testing one's manhood. Of, I have to say for myself, I've sort of lived a kind of adventurer's uh, Hemingway-ish kind of life and have written a lot about my exploits and um, but I've translated into different things rather than things like short stories and novels. Uh, my stuff is going into movies and this podcast and it'll later be coming out in a book. And uh, these this was more that's more my medium than than writing novels, although I, I, I do have a few novels that I've written. Not very good, I might add, but in any case, they're, they're sort of in this concept of, of the way Hemingway saw things and the way he wrote. And I write somewhat short sentences, brief, let the conversation be going in your head and let the words on the page just be the, it's your guide. So this test of manhood with this fish the knocking down of the boat had shaken everyone up. Nicky had a wounded wing and this was more almost appropriate to his personality and his things that he needed to have done for his life. Toby was in like general shock and Guillermo was struggling to reach that place, that strong place. He he, his world was a world of vision. It wasn't a physical world in that regard, although painting is somewhat physical. But it was a different kind of experience for him. So after struggling with this fish for like five hours, we were literally three miles from Magdalena Bay. And the fish finally tired we got it up to the side of the boat. We gaffed it. We couldn't get it in the boat. So I used the mizzen boom with a hook and block and tackle. And I, with the gaff, and I lifted that thing up. 
sailor-wise, and drug it across the back of the boat. It was the biggest, biggest freaking fish I'd seen in years. It was wonderful. And it was a good, it was a good feeling after every, this is an adventure, it was a good feeling of what we were going through. So we went into Magdalena Bay, and the, the people that watch you when you're in a boat from the shore is amazing. You're, if you think you're coming into some place and nobody sees you, you're mistaken. People always see you. And in fact, when we got to the dock, the little commercial dock there, there was a couple of guys standing there asking if we, they could buy that fish. And I kind of put Guillermo in charge of it. I said, yeah, do it, dude. Figure out what we can do with this fish. So Guillermo said he, had, he knew somebody. So he, he went to this little phone, uh, phone booth thing right next to the canning place. And he made a couple of calls. And the next thing, this, this, this old Mexican guy kind of shows up to hat, you know, the big cowboy hat, and cowboy boots, and big buckle and stuff like that, and talks to Guillermo. And they're, they're going on and on and on. And, and it turns out that one of uh, Guillermo's uh, artistic friends lives up in the mountains behind Magdalena Bay. And that this was his uh, father. And his father had this red Chevy pickup, like 1958 Chevy pickup, gorgeous. And and he was going to take the fish. And then we would drive up to the house in the mountains and we would have dinner. And that they would distribute the fish, because it's so big, to the rest of the little village that, that was up in the mountains. And I agreed. Guillermo agreed. Um, everybody was, Hat Toby was like ecstatic that this this was what we were going to do. the The idea of generosity was like a light bulb went off in his head. You know, like yeah, well, like you know, we donate to the United Way, but this is like this is stuff. This is good stuff. And Nikki was still a little. Nikki was a little like depressed by it, angry about it. His prejudice towards brown people sort of started to pop up. And he was he had to come to terms with that. We don't know how he was going to come to terms with it. But so the old man took the fish in the back of the pickup. I took Nikki over to the doctor's office. And the doctor gave him some pills that made him very loopy and um, put his arm in a cast, took an x-ray, put his arm in a cast. The x-ray machine probably came, was one of the first x-ray machines ever made. It was funny. And um, Nikki wanted to say stuff. He wanted to comment on it. He wanted to give that whole New York da-da-da-da-da kind of thing, but he couldn't. He, he just couldn't. It was just, he was in too much pain. So he ended up arm in a cast, sling, taking pain pills. He was in good shape, very good shape. So later that, that the next day, the, the next day in the evening, um, we got picked up um, by uh, Jorge, who is the artist friend of uh, Guillermo. And he, he drove us all up to, up into the mountain. It was about 45 minutes away. And it was just, you know, it was kind of barren, but there was, you know, it's just this little conclave of pretty houses and, and fresh water and just beauty. And what they had done is they had this kiln, very kind of short squat kiln, filled it up with wild mesquite that they cut out of the desert and it almost looked kind of like a it was a kiln kind of like a pizza oven that you would see and they you know they would put the fire in there and then um they would have these uh 
you know, these uh, stones that were inside, that they had taken a cubit, like um, like a, a 12 by 12 by 12 cube of the meat. And they had put all these peppers and stuff on it and different spices. And they had put it in an oven in this kiln using like a pizza um, shovel um, pan. And they left that in there all night. And they tended the fire all night. And, and then they came out and there's a big table, big table. Or outside there was, you know, Christmas tree lights hanging and and little kids running around and there was a little fountain over in the corner it was just absolutely gorgeous and this big table and all the people in the village brought their favorite dishes what they did best and i can't even tell you what food it was or whatever but every single dish was so you had to take a bite of it obviously and eat a little bit and then of course yeah gracias you know Bueno, bueno, bueno. And it was like, and, and it was, it was just unbelievably delicious. And people in the village did this because we had provided this fish, which was very important to them in terms of diet. And they couldn't afford it. They were, you know, poor people. And so the old man took this pizza, um, what do they call them? This, you know, the the big square paddles and went in the oven scooped up underneath that big chunk of marlin brought it to the table and pulled the pan out really fast just like you would pull the um, cover off a table and all the dishes would stay still right and and the meat just flaked off just like it just flaked into this big mound of sizzling beautiful fish which you would take with your fingers and you'd put in a taco and just eat it it was so delicious i'll never forget how delicious this food was we had plenty of tequila we didn't go back to the boat until the morning, just to let you know. We ate, like, almost all day, all night. We drank. There was some people playing guitar. There was dancing. There was all sorts of things. And it was a great thing. And I could see on Nikki's face something that was fighting in him and that he realized... And he told me as we were leaving the next morning, he says, when we get to Cabo, he says, I'm going to get on a plane and go home. He says, I really realized I missed my family. And all that anger and all that bigotry and all that prejudice had dissipated, had fallen away. His heart had opened. He He's seen people in a different light, not from this protective, angry, brutal kind of anger thing that he had going. Toby was just as happy as a child would be. And Guillermo was reveling in his friendship with Jorge. They talked they talked about art and they talked about politics. That it was a wonderful time and I talked with them as well and and, and it all went very, very well. So we left Magdalena Bay, all of us feeling this great, uplifting um, moment had actually uh, changed something in us. And we did the next 400 miles down to Cabo, basically with an asymmetrical up, smooth seas, moving right along, having a great time, quietly enjoying the peace of the great Pacific Ocean. When we got to Cabo, Nicky was straight off the boat to the plane. He was gone. Never saw him again. Toby 
had found some surfing friends. Surfers that, that he had known, but, you know, a lot of dudes. And he had run into a bunch of Mexican surfer dudes and had become fast friends and had realized that he needed to be more generous and open his heart. And I had talked to Toby about this later on in his development. He had, he had stayed as a mate with me for about two and a half years. And he was a wonderful mate. He was really, he was really terrific and very supportive and took his job seriously. And as things would have it, Toby sounds, as I painted him, as kind of a doofus, kind of crazy, childlike man person. Um, and he is, and he still is. Um, he just happens to be a multimillionaire um, for being involved with uh, Microsoft and Oracle. He, was, he did a lot of stuff with Oracle. Um, he was... <laughs> He, he and his buddies, they all ended up being like, you know, computer dudes up in the, up in San Francisco and investors and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And there's some crazy dudes, very nice people, very nice people. And Guillermo, Guillermo and I, we sat on a boat in Cabo St. Lucas in the marina and he confessed to me his feelings about his jealousy of me and that it made him angry and that he really was wrong for doing that and that he regretted it. But he said what he wanted to do. He says, I want to take you someplace tonight. I said, okay, great. So we went to this hotel and we talked along the way and our, our friendship, we became more and more bonded. And, you know, he admitted that, yes, he would try to steal my girlfriends away from him, from me, and that he was, you know, a bit of a dick about it. Um, but he did this because he had so much admiration for me, not because I could get girls, but because I could be so honest with them in terms of, of what the relationship was going to be and how much, you know, life and fun and all the rest of that kind of things that go into, you know, those early years of relationships. And he had, he was very awkward in that regard, although handsome, but his upbringing, his heavy, um, Catholic Mexican family, um, you know, had, had sort of guided him into a particular, uh, mindset of being very dominant and all the rest of that. And he realized that it wasn't serving him very well. And this is what he was telling me. So we went into this beautiful hotel and um, he said, come with me. And everybody waves to him like they know him, right? <laughs> like This one's great. And we walked down this hallway that was just off the main entrance. And there is that portrait of Jan with her breasts hanging out and the red uh, cloth or whatever it was over her hips and legs. And that look, that look of, I'd rather be somewhere else, but my life is going to take me to a place that's safe. But what I really want is a place amongst the adventurers. Wow, Scott. Gee, that, that uh, sounds really delicious, that fish that they cooked for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was, it was a big 600-pound marlin. Now, it's not the biggest... Uh, that anybody's ever caught, but it was big enough to pretty much almost bring the boat to a stop. And I thought we were actually going backwards. But um, the generosity of the people and the friendship that they showed and the kindness and the food was so delicious. And 
the tequila never stopped coming and it was probably one of the best um fiestas that i've ever had wow and so what is what is the art world like in in tijuana well in tijuana the art world is is uh is very um diverse and it's it's big there's a lot of people that live in that are from san diego americans that uh, live and work in um, Tijuana. And there's a, uh, so that you have that um, uh, uh, community of Americans uh, doing art because it's a little bit less expensive for housing, etc. And then there's a number of um, Spanish artists, um, artists from Ireland, um, and there's a little colony that has popped up and some of the little art galleries, you know, most Tijuana, people go to Tijuana, they see bars and pharmaceutical people, you know, selling drugs and stuff like that. So, but if you look around, you can find some really interesting pieces. Thanks for sharing everybody and look forward to seeing you all next week. Be sure to go to offshoreshipslocker.com to get all your sailing needs. Thank you for tuning in. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to rate and review. You can find us on Facebook and at offshoreexplorer.org. You can also listen to past episodes at offshore-explorer.simplecast.com. Our theme song is sung by Paulette McWilliams, with additional music by Amanu Itomi and Tommy Twang. Until next time, fair winds and calm seas. <laughs>